switch. How many people here know what Google Home is? Okay, that's, that's not bad. So if, in case you don't know, uh, Google Home, you can see it on screen. It's that white device there, and it's what's called a smart speaker. And so it sits on your counter, your coffee table, or whatever, and you can interact with it using voice commands, and it'll speak back to you. And it's connected to the internet and to all of Google's online tools. And so it can do some pretty interesting things, like you can ask it to, you can con connect it to your home and get it to turn your lights on and off or your, turn your thermostat up and down, and you can get it to check your email or put something on your calendar. And one of the big things that it can do is it can search the, you can ask it a question, and it can search the internet and it, using, it'll use Google's, you know, search engine, and it'll come back to you and, and give you an answer. It'll just answer you as if you're having a conversation with it uh, with the best answer that it can get from the internet. Now, recently, uh, Google got into a bit of a controversy over this because um, people with time on their hands started posting videos online of themselves asking their Google Home devices, okay, Google, who is Jesus Christ? And, and the question stumped Google Home. They, uh, so you could ask it, who is Oprah, who is Kim Kardashian, who, do, who is... Buddha, who is Muhammad, and it would search the internet, and you'd get a half-decent answer, but you'd ask it, okay, Google, who is Jesus Christ, and it would give you um, its standard uh, pleasant non-answer, which is something like, um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not sure how to help right now, um, right? And, and so people, you know, some people got, got offended by this, and I think the controversy is maybe a little bit silly, because, like, let's, let's be real, it's not... Like, there's no reason why a computer algorithm whose job is to search the internet should be acknowledging Jesus as Lord and Savior. Like, we don't need to be offended about that. But, but I mention it because I think that, you know, I think that Google ran into the same problem that we all run into. See, Google issued a, a statement and they clarified saying, you know what, we actually, we programmed it to do this because... Um, there's, it's, it's searching the internet for these answers. And there is a lot of noise about Jesus on the internet. And they, wanted, they didn't want their device to repeat anything to people that was uh, incorrect or offensive or inflammatory. Right? And so they, they just chose, it just chose to have a non-answer because there's so much noise out there about the question of who is Jesus. Maybe you've struggled the same way to answer the question, who is Jesus? And maybe you've encountered the noise. You know, you get, um, it's, it's the season leading up to Easter now, and so you get the same news articles, you know, republished in, in different news outlets, uh, speculating about the, uh, the historical Jesus and what did he look like, what did he dress like, and what happened around his death and resurrection, and some of it is, is, you know, more charitable toward Christianity, and then some of it sort of is really, really kind of these um, conspiracy theories that are designed to, you know, kind of sensationalize things, and so you, you get kind of Da Vinci Code conspiracy theory stuff, and then you get 
Christians panicked responses to the conspiracy theories, and then you get Republicans and Democrats each claiming that Jesus' teachings conveniently support their political views, and then you get everyone weighing in with little shreds of evidence that they've heard or, or read about Jesus and weighing in with their opinions, and then you wind up with just like weird stuff, like there was a man in Florida uh, a few weeks ago who... Um, I, I guess he was he was mentally ill, and so he was claiming that he was Jesus um, during an altercation with police, and then he threw a chair at a policeman, which is not very Christ-like. Um, so, so maybe you've struggled the same way that Google struggles to to search for a clear answer about who is Jesus amidst all the noise. Now, what if, what if there was someone who could cut through the noise and give us a clear and reliable answer? One such person is John, the son of Zebedee. Uh, we, we mentioned last week that we are beginning um, a sermon series in one of John, the son of Zebedee's uh, writings, which is called The Gospel of John, and the series is called God among us. And John is really going to be that kind of person. He's going to be someone who can, who can cut through all the noise and give us a clear answer as to who Jesus is. You know, um, we first meet John. Let me tell you a bit about him. We first meet John um, in Mark chapter 1, verse 19. And what's happening is he's working together with his brother James and his dad, Zebedee, um, and they're working in their family business. They own a fishing company. So they're working together on their boat, you know, at the docks uh, together with their employees. Jesus walks up to them and he says, this is early on in Jesus' story, he walks up and says, follow me. And they do. We don't, and we don't know, like, the text indicates they kind of just drop it and go. And we don't know how that decision was made. I like to think, this is, this is my speculation, but I like to think that God had been working in the hearts of James and John uh, for some time before they met Jesus so that when they met him, uh, they were able to make that decision quickly. But whatever the case, they, they meet Jesus. He says, follow me. They follow him, and they wind up following him throughout his public ministry. Three years, they're with him almost 24-7 as he's traveling around teaching and performing miracles and uh, getting into confrontations and all kinds of things. And James and John become two of the 12 disciples. Jesus is sort of key, um, Jesus key followers. And then, within the, and then within the 12, there's an inner circle of three who are a little bit closer, and that's Peter and James and John. And then within the three, there's, uh, there's one person who's called the disciple Jesus loved, and that's John. And so when we talk about John the Apostle, John the son of Zebedee, we're possibly talking about Jesus' closest friend, certainly one of uh, his closest friends. And, and then John is with Jesus for three years, uh, being taught by him, watching him uh, do his public ministry. John winds up after this uh, being a key figure in the early church. He, he works to help uh, spread Christianity first uh, in Judea, which is their, their home region, and then eventually Roman persecution scatters uh, the Christians, which is uh, 
probably the best thing that ever happened to Christianity. And so they're scattered throughout the Roman Empire. For John, that means he winds up eventually in the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. He winds up there between the year 70 and 100, and, and scholars' best, um, best theory is that that's when he did um, the majority of his writing. John is, is credited with five books of the Bible, Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, uh, which are letters he wrote, and then Revelation. Um, and so the majority of those texts, scholars believe, were written during this time uh, between A.D. 70 and 100 in the city of Ephesus. So John is now 60, 70, 80 years old. He has spent his life uh, first learning from Jesus and then teaching people about Jesus. He gets later in his life and he says, I'm going to put this down on paper. And he writes down his best, uh, his best account, his best retelling of the Jesus story. And that's what we have in our Bibles as, and we, we call it the Gospel of John or the Gospel according to John. So this book is going to be really that, that clear call cutting through the noise of John saying, listen, I know this is who Jesus is, and I know that because I was there, I was his friend, he taught me, I watched him. This is who Jesus is. And so it's going to take him, uh, it's going to take John about 21 chapters to, to unpack who Jesus is. So we're going to spend a long time in the Gospel of John. Uh, we're going to go from now until uh, the end of June, we'll probably finish the first six chapters, then we'll take a break, we're going to come back next year and do another chunk, and probably the year after that and do another uh, chunk, because it's a, it's, a, it's a serious book, and it's pretty densely packed. So uh, we're excited to start this journey together. We, we heard Rich a moment ago read our text from to, for today. Um, next week, the action of the story is really going to get going. But the text that we're looking at today is really kind of the prologue to John's story of Jesus. He starts out uh, with kind of this theological uh, statement about what this whole book is going to mean. And so he's going to give us some key ideas uh, just in, in this passage um, that are going to be played out throughout the book. And so we're going to look at just, just two, um, two big ideas from John chapter 1. If you have your Bibles and you're not there yet, you could open them up to John chapter 1. So the first big idea is going to be Jesus is the Word in human form. Jesus is the Word in human form. We'll unpack that. So verses 1 to 3 say, In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. So John starts out, and he's calling Jesus the Word. That's a weird thing to say, right? He's calling Jesus the Word. What is he doing? Well, he's actually, uh, when you dig in, he's, he's doing some pretty significant things by using the word, word, to talk about Jesus. Uh, in Greek, it's logos. Jesus is the Word, the logos. Now, part of what he's doing, we can understand uh, pretty easily as modern people. Because what is a word? 
a word is, um, it's like I'm speaking to you right now using words. And what's happening is uh, that my mind and will, my thoughts, my intentions, uh, my feelings um, are being embodied to you, expressed to you in, in the physical realm outside of me, right? Through vibrations in the air that you hear as sound. And so we can see just as modern people that part of what John is doing is he's saying that God, uh, that Jesus is the word of God, that Jesus is an embodiment, um, an expression of the, the mind and heart of God. In fact, at, right at the end of the prologue today in verse 18, it says, no one has seen God, but that Jesus has revealed him to us. Uh, it, that word revealed is literally he explained or expressed God to us. So we can understand that as modern people. But then there, there are a couple other layers here that, that we can only see if we read this text as if we were ancient people. And so um, the evidence is pretty clear and compelling that, um, that John is writing to a mixed audience. And so there are some people from a, a Jewish background and some people from a Greco-Roman background, a Greek-influenced Background And for both those groups, what John is doing here is, is dynamite. So um, let's talk about the Greeks first. So, so the Greco-Roman people that he's writing to, um, these would have been the kinds of people around the city of Ephesus. Um, they would have been familiar with and influenced by Greek philosophy. And one of the key ideas of ancient Greek philosophy is that, um, is that at the bottom of everything, at the ba- bottom of everything that exists, there's a, there's a divine order, a divine reason, a divine idea that gives existence to everything and gives order to everything that exists, okay? That's a key idea from Greek philosophy, and that thing at the center of everything, at the, at the bottom of everything, that reality is called in Greek philosophy the logos. It's called the word, okay? And, and the word in Greek philosophy is not a person. Uh, it's, it's more like uh, it's, it's sort of an impersonal spiritual reality. I've heard it described uh, compared to the idea of the force, okay? May the force be with you, right? You may know that idea from the popular film series Harry Potter. And so that's the, that would be the Greek view. It's kind of like the logos is, is this thing that gives the, the universe order. Then there's people with a Jewish background, and for those people, this, uh, these verses are also really powerful. Now, first of all, John starts out his book with three words, in the beginning. If you're a, a Jewish reader uh, in the first century, immediately, one, with 100% certainty, you hear those words and you're thinking, there's another really important book that starts with in the beginning. What book is that? Shout it out if you know it. Genesis. Genesis. Yeah, so the, the first book of the Christian Bible and, and the Juice Bible would be, was, is Genesis. And it, be, it begins by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and 
the earth. And so immediately a Jewish reader is going, oh, we're talking about the same thing that Genesis talked about. Now, if you read Genesis chapter 1, which is the, the story of God creating everything, this is a little bit harder question. How does God create everything? Shout it out if you know it. He spoke. Yes, you guys are on it. God, God creates things. He says, let there be light, and there's light. Let there be uh, an expanse between the heavens above and the waters below, and so there's a sky. And so again and again throughout that chapter, God speaks, and things come into existence. God uses words to bring things into existence. John comes along, and he says in verse 3, God created everything through him, through the word, and nothing was created except through him. And so you can see he's, he's bringing up this idea of, of God the creator from Genesis. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about the word. So John writes these first three verses. Greeks would read it and say, oh, John is going to give us, tell us about this thing, this order that's at the center of the universe. And, and uh Jews would read these first few verses and say, oh, John's going to talk to us about, about God the creator. And then John drops a bomb. So verse 14 says, so the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son, uh, that's, that's one of the most important verses in the Gospel of John. That's um, why we call the series God Among Us. John says the, the word became human. And so Greeks would read that and say, wait, the, the word is not just an import, impersonal force, an impersonal spiritual reality. No, it's a, it's, it's a person. It's a human being. And then for Jews, Jews would read that. And, uh, and it's maybe even more shocking for Jews. Um, when it says the word became human and made his home among us, it actually says the word became human and tented among us or tabernacled among us. If you don't know the, the word tabernacle, uh, it's, it's a word for a big tent. And in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, God's people were wandering through the desert and God dwelled among his people in a, a big tent that was a portable worship center and it was called the tabernacle. And John deliberately takes that language and puts it in here. And not only that, but when he says uh, he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness and we have seen his glory uh, in addition to several other spots in this text... He's actually picking up language from the Old Testament from stories that talk about God dwelling among his people. Okay, stick with me here. So in the Old Testament, God did dwell among his people. Uh, they would, God's people would experience God's presence or God's glory as a, as a visible shining light. And so we first see it uh, on Mount Sinai. Sinai. Moses goes up. He meets with God. He receives the law. He comes down, and his face is actually glowing uh, from, from the light of God's presence. And then later, uh, 
we have the tabernacle, this portable worship center, and at the center of the tabernacle, behind several layers of curtains, several layers of um, security clearance, if you like, um, God, God dwelled in a place called the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, and then later on they built a, a permanent temple when they settled uh, in Jerusalem, and again, there was a, a central part, the Holy of Holies, where God's glory dwelled. And if you read those stories, uh, you'll be reading these stories a little bit if you're following along with our study guides in your care group. God dwells among his people in the Old Testament, but he's not very accessible. He's up on the mountain or he's, he's deep in the, in the central part of the tabernacle and the temple, and, and most people uh, can't get near him. Okay, if, depending on who you are, if you're, um, if you're you know, a, a woman or a Gentile, uh, s- sorry, but the, the rule was you weren't allowed to get too far in, and then if you come in closer, and, uh, if you're, and then you couldn't get to the, to the very holy places of the temple or the tabernacle if you, unless you were a priest. And in fact, the holy of holies, the part where, where God actually dwelled, uh, the high priest, only the high priest, the chief priest, was allowed to go in, and only once a year he would go in on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifice. They would send him in with a rope tied around him because God's presence was a fearsome thing. They, they were afraid of it. It was terrifying, and they had a rope tied around him because if he got struck dead by the presence of God, they would drag him out without going in themselves for fear of them being struck dead. And so it's a very uh, sort of... It's a picture of a a God who is among his people, but you don't have direct access, and and in fact, you fear direct access. And John says, John picks up all the language from those stories, and he says, now God's doing it in a person. God is changing the way that he relates to his people on a fundamental level. This, this God who is uh, a little bit unreachable and a, a little bit, uh, you know, y- y- you're a little bit afraid to encounter him. Now, he's going to take up residence in a person that anyone can encounter. And so people could encounter God. Uh, Gentiles, women, lepers, tax collectors, uh, shepherds, People who would not have had access to God, God says, I'm going to dwell among you. You can encounter me. We can be in relationship. I'm going to dwell among my people in a much more personal way than I had in the past. And Jesus, this is going to come up again later in this book where Jesus is going to come and he's going to talk to Jews who are uh, obsessed with encountering God in the temple and following all the rules around the temple. And he's going to say to them, now I'm the temple. He's going to say, you don't encounter God in those four walls. You encounter God in me. You have a relationship with God by having a relationship with me. That's where we're going to go in a few weeks' time. Jesus is going to say that. So, all that to say, John chapter 1 is presenting Jesus as the word in human form. 
John chapter 1 is presenting Jesus as the meeting place, listen, the meeting place between heaven and earth, the meeting place between the creator and the creation, the meeting place between the, uh, the natural and the supernatural, the spiritual and the physical, that all of that uh, comes together in Jesus. And this idea was um, revolutionary and challenged the theology of its time back then. And it's revolutionary and challenges our theology today. See, there are those today who would say there is no spiritual realm. There's no supernatural reality. There's only what we can see and what we can verify and what we can explain according to the laws of nature. And John says, no, there, there's more. And I've seen it. I've encountered it firsthand by walking around with Jesus. There are those today who, unlike, or not unlike the Greeks, would say maybe there is a spiritual reality, but it's more of a, an impersonal, uh, you know, spiritual reality to the universe. I, I think that this is where spirituality is going in the 21st century, where it's, it's more something that you can almost access within. Uh, people are talking about spiritual uh, experiences using different mental meditation practices, sometimes uh, involving drugs. Like, that's becoming the new spirituality. And John says, comes along and says, no, listen, spirituality isn't like a state of mind. The spiritual realm is not something you find within your psyche. It's, it's a person. It's Jesus. You can have a relationship with him. And there are those today still who, who not unlike the Jews, uh, believe that there is a God, but he's a distant God, an unreachable God, maybe even a God that we need to um, fear, a God that we maybe need to appease or impress. And John says, no, actually, there's a, actually, there is a God, and he reached out to us because he's full of unfailing love and faithfulness, he says. Not because we were excellent. We didn't reach up to heaven with our excellence, but he reached, uh, heaven reached down to us in Jesus. And so Jesus is, is the word, he's God, he's the central reality of the universe, and he's the word in human form. That was a lot of theology. Uh, thanks for sticking with me. There's, there's so much theology in this text, we could talk all day. We could talk about how he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Uh, how can you be with God and also be God? And that's why we understand the Trinity and, God, and how God is one God in three persons. We could talk about how the word was, uh, was there in the beginning and was not a created thing. That, that Jesus uh, was there from eternity past and was not created by God, which is the... Um, which is the teaching of Jehovah's Witnesses, and it's why uh, we would say that, they, that Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians because they've actually gotten that part of the faith, a key part of the faith, who is Jesus, they've gotten that uh, misconstrued. And so we could talk for a long time about theology uh, in this passage, but let me just get you uh, kind of to the point of all this, and it's our second big idea, which is simply Jesus came so that we could have new life. Jesus came so that we could have new life. Verses 12 and 13 uh, say, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn. 
not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. The reason that Jesus came, the reason that the word uh, became human is plain throughout the Gospel of John. It's so that we human beings can have new life. We see that uh, in verses 12 and 13. He uses the image of spiritual rebirth there. Uh, In chapter 3, we'll get there in a few weeks, uh, the idea of rebirth will come up again. Uh, The term born again will come up. Uh, The idea of eternal life will come up. The big idea is that by default, because of, our, because of our sinfulness, because of our brokenness as people, we, we're not spiritually awake, spiritually alive. We need to be made spiritually alive. And Jesus is offering uh, to us, is offering us um, that new life. That what we need is not uh, tips or techniques or tweaks. We need to be born again. And Jesus comes to offer us new life. Uh, he, he offers us new birth. Uh, theologically, we call it regeneration. And listen, re- rebirth is real. See, on the one hand, um, on the one hand, we're not eyewitnesses to Jesus. We're trusting John who was an eyewitness to Jesus. But this part of the story, we get to be eyewitnesses to. This, this spiritual rebirth. If you're a Christian, you have, um, you have that story. And other Christians around you have that story. In a few weeks, we're going to um, do a baptism and membership Sunday. And as part of that... Uh, we're gonna we're gonna hear people's stories of faith, and it's their stories of rebirth. Your your story of faith is is a story of, of you saying, "I was not spiritually alive, but I was reborn spiritually through Jesus." That's every Christian's story. We we actually uh, on church council we've started um, at the start of each meeting, hearing one to two. Uh, council members tell their their faith stories, their testimonies, and and it's amazing to see how how for all of us, God took a human being who who needed a spiritual awakening, a spiritual rebirth, and and he and Jesus worked powerfully in people's lives, and now we and now we sit here uh, together as believers because of what Jesus has done in our lives. I'll just, I'll just share, um, for me, the time that I had, that I first kind of had a deep experience with Jesus, a deep encounter with Jesus, uh, was when I went away to, bi- away to Bible school. And it, for probably, probably 18 months, two years before that, I was in rough shape, uh, pretty depressed, not dealing with life very well, not a lot of um, even kind of motivation to find a better way in life. And, I, and I'm convinced that, that my path would have been, um, been a pretty bad path if I hadn't encountered Jesus. And, and he changed my life and, and gave me a new hope and a new desire and a new, a, a new, um, a new spiritual life. 
And for all of us, if we're Christians, that's our story. So on the one hand, we're trusting John because he's an eyewitness to the Jesus story. But on the other hand, all of us are eyewitnesses. That's why it's so important uh, to be in community, in church, to be in a care group. Uh, it's, it's why church is more than five songs and a sermon, and I say that as a preacher. Um, to be in community with other people, to hear their stories, to see Jesus working in people's lives, we get to be eyewitnesses to part of the Jesus story. So Jesus comes to offer us new life, and the way that we uh, access that new life is also clear um, throughout the Gospel of John. You can see it in verse 12. It says, um, to all who believed him and accepted him. John 3.16 says, for God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And John chapter 20 uh, we, went, we went here last week as well. We'll keep coming back here. It says that these, these stories are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. And so we talked last week about how the whole Gospel of John can be understood under th- that verse. Uh, it's, the whole thing is an invitation to believe in Jesus. And so that invitation is on the table again today and will be uh, throughout the series. That Jesus is the word who became human to offer, to offer new spiritual life. And that new life can be yours by believing in Jesus and entering into a relationship with him. And so maybe, maybe uh, even at the beginning of the Gospel of John, what he's been saying about who Jesus is is stirring in stirring something in your heart. Maybe uh, as I was theorizing about John himself, uh, God has been working in your heart for a while to prepare you for when when Jesus would say, "Hey, come follow me." Maybe you don't have all of your questions answered, but in your heart. This is, in some way, ringing true for you. Today may be your day to believe in, in the word who became flesh. And so if that's you, um, encourage you to, um, in, in a few moments, we're going to be doing communion. The prayer team will be at the front. just encourage you to come up to one of them and talk it through with them. They're not going to put pressure on you. Um, it's easy to just walk out of here. But today could be your day. Maybe you're not there yet. That's okay. Keep on coming. We got 20 chapters left. And we're glad that we're journeying this with you. You also don't know how many days you get, though. So maybe today is your day. So who is Jesus Christ? Uh, John has started to make some serious claims about who Jesus is. Question is, do you believe them? Do you believe them? Uh, Too many modern people are doing what Google Home did, and they just have a non-answer to the question, who is Jesus? But here's the thing. Having unpacked a little bit who the Bible is claiming that Jesus is, I need to tell you something. 
Jesus is either worth nothing or worth everything. Okay, you read John 1. He's the Word made flesh. He's the central uh, spiritual reality of the universe. He's the creator, and he became a human being, and he wants to be in relationship with you and make you uh, and give you new life. Either that's false, and Jesus is a con man, and is not worth a second thought, and we should shut this down, donate this building to the city. They can make it a community center or something. Or it's true, and Jesus is worth everything. And Jesus is the most important thing in the universe, the most important thing in your life. And, and, there's, no, and there's no way that anything could, uh, could be more important. And we need to reorient our lives, every piece of our lives around Jesus, because there's no job, no reputation, no white picket fence Canadian dream, no security, no TV show, no sports game. Uh, <laughs> nothing that could be more important than the word becoming flesh and inviting you into new life. Who is Jesus Christ? John is beginning to give him, give us his answer. What's your answer? We're going to transition into communion now. Uh, one piece that didn't come up in chapter one, um, but will come up later, later in the book, is that new life, the new life that Jesus offers us, it came uh, at a price, and the price, it was the price of Jesus' death on the cross uh, to purchase our forgiveness from our sins. And so the Word became human to, to offer us new life, yes, but the whole story is the Word became human uh, to buy us uh, forgiveness so that we could have new life. More on that later in the series. And so this past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, which is... Um, the beginning of a season in the Christian calendar called Lent. Lent is a six-week period uh, leading up to Easter that Christians have traditionally set aside to prepare their hearts for Easter and to meditate on Jesus' sacrifice for us and to worship Jesus for his sacrifice uh, for us. And, and typically the way that Christians um, do this is, is by giving something up, fasting it's called, giving something up for the Lent season, uh, whether it's, you know, chocolate or meat or uh, coffee or TV or social media. It's crazy, actually. For the first 1,900 years, every Christian gave up social media for all of Lent. <laughs> but the idea is just to build something into your daily rhythm that's an act of worship to Jesus during this time that we remember uh, remember the cross. And then the fast will end on Easter Sunday when we celebrate the resurrection uh, and we break our fast during Lent. We break our fast every Sunday as a, as a way of looking forward to Easter. And so I don't know if you're giving something up for Lent this year. Um, I know it's been a few days. You can still jump in if you want just um, as a spiritual discipline and as, as a way of preparing your heart for Easter as a kind of a spiritual discipline. Um, that's something I'll leave with you to prayerfully discern. But whether or not you're fasting over Lent, we are going to take this first Sunday in Lent and um, spend some time remembering the cross together um, by taking communion. And so I want to invite the band up. 
uh, prayer team, you guys can go ahead and take your places at the sides here uh, during communion. If you want to uh, approach one of the prayer team members, please do that. I'll, I'll invite up the servers as well. Let me read you what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he cook, took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. And so we invite all those who understand the meaning of the Lord's Supper, the meaning of communion, who confess Jesus as Lord in word and life, are accountable to their congregation, and are living in right relationship with God and others to participate in the Lord's Supper. And if that's not you today, that's okay. You can just remain in your seat. No need to feel awkward. So in a moment, I'm going to pray, and, and the band will begin to play a couple of songs, and, and you can, uh, at that time, stand and, and sing along. And then when you're ready, um, just make your way to the front to one of our tables uh, using this aisle and this aisle, and then uh, you can get your bread in your cup, and you can return to your seat using the center aisle and the outside aisles. Uh, and you can, you can eat or drink, eat and drink your bread and cup um, Whenever you're ready, if you want to uh, do that prayerfully on your own, if you want to do that together with someone you came with, um, that's okay, but you don't need to wait for us to cue you. If you desire prayer, we do invite you to uh, speak to one of our prayer team members as people are, are milling about. And then, and then once you've um, taken your bread and cup, we'll just, we'll just continue in song together. Let me, let me pray, and then we'll begin. Lord Jesus, we thank you that, um, we thank you that you reached out to us. We thank you that, that though you're the greatest, um, the greatest reality in the universe, that you became a humble human being in order to let us encounter you, and in order uh, not only to be among us, but to, to die for us. Um, a death that, that was not yours uh, by, by justice, but because of your grace, because of your unfailing love and faithfulness. You died uh, to, so that we could be forgiven for our sins um, and to allow us to be in relationship with you. And so this day and this Lent season, Lord, let us not lose sight of what you've done for us and let us walk deeply in relationship with you. You're the word in human form who reached out to be in relationship with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't we stand?